Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. On today's episode, in her new book, Republic of Shame, journalist Caelan Hogan examines Ireland's mother and baby homes and the collusion of the Catholic Church with the Irish state. Personal accounts from survivors, nuns and others bring the truth forward for all to see. I spoke to Caelan about the book, about the stories of the women she spoke to, the lack of understanding of the suffering they endured and about the appalling legacy of Ireland's mother and baby homes. Caelan, thank you very much for coming in. First of all, the book Republic of Shame is an absolutely brilliant read and I think a really necessary publication. So thank you for doing it. And I just wanted to start by asking you why um, you got into writing about this, about the locking up, the incarceration of so many women in Ireland over the years? I think for me, um, you know, as a young woman growing up in Dublin, I always thought of institutions like the Magdalene Laundries as being something of the past, something that didn't affect my generation. And I started talking to people for this book in 2017, which was a really pivotal year. It was a few years after the marriage equality referendum, when those conversations about who gets to be a family were, you know, being discussed. And that was a very painful debate that's resurfaced. And we were looking ahead to, um, you know, a referendum on repeal and the papal visit. So for me personally, um, it was about finding out how close to home these institutions were. There was um, a place called Temple Hill around the corner from my house where babies were held for adoption or awaiting adoption in an institution there. And I'd walked past it often and never knew what happened behind those walls. The Daughters of Charity have their provincial house across the road from me. And it was, you know, speaking with people who had experienced these institutions firsthand or who were affected by it, I came to realize very quickly just how recent all of this was. I spoke to people who were born in mother-baby homes like Bespra in 1988, the same year that I was born. I spoke to um, the aunt of a very close friend of mine who was sent to a mother-baby home again in 1988 and gave birth there, and she did manage to keep her child but was you know not allowed to bring her 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 baby back home she actually grew up in black rock as well so close to close to where i did 
And she sort of had to struggle to raise her child uh, as an unmarried mother, as, as you know, the term was used, um, facing sort of poverty and, and, and stigma and, and ostracization even in the late 80s. And many of these institutions were open until the late 90s. I came across an institution that was open until 2006 in Donegal. So these, you know, were institutions that were operating within my lifetime. And also I came to realize that there were still ongoing issues. So people who were adopted through these institutions and the religious-run agencies still didn't have access to their own birth information. That was under legislation that's, you know, continuing in our name. So there were there were issues that needed to be addressed, you know, right now, and people still facing barriers, still fe- facing sort of a culture of secrecy that was ongoing, um, and still being denied that right to their own identity by the state. And what did you discover as a younger person about that culture of shame? I mean, the book is called Republic of Shame, which is a great uh, title. But a lot of this control and the fact that there were, you know, you, you, the, the subtitle of the book is Stories from Ireland's Institutions for Fallen Women. So as a younger person, were you shocked by kind of that stigmatisation of women who, not just for getting pregnant, but for being high spirited or for being anything that wasn't exactly what, say, the, the bishops or the priests thought that a woman should be? Yeah, it was, you know, when you come across the kind of words, the language that was used about women, you know, in state and church records, in black and white, on paper, words like offenders, <coughs> words like penitent, um, women being called offenders and penitents only for becoming pregnant. That was the only, you know, supposed crime they'd committed. And there was one woman I met who gave birth twice in Tum and was then sent to a mountain laundry in Galway. And I think especially with Tume, because it closed in 61, you know, there was a sense that, you know, the women who who experienced that first hand who gave birth there, you know, were either, you know, sort of no longer around to speak about their experience. But here was a woman who's nearly 81, but, you know, still, um, still affected by what she went through. And we were trying to get her records so that she could, you know, sort of find out more about what, you know, what had happened um, and to have those records to sort of to show um, because it's for Magdalene women applying for redress. This is a huge issue and um, being able to prove that they were in these laundries. The questions are asked, like, how many hours did you work? You know, when when were you sent to the institution? When did you leave? And we had to apply to the Sisters of Mercy for her records, which is the same religious order that incarcerated her. Um, and we got back a single line from a ledger that said she was sent by uh, two nuns from Tume. Um, her home place was put as Tume, so not, not where she was actually from, as if she came from the institution. And under cause for why she was sent to the laundry was twice penitent. So for giving birth twice, that was the sort of the reason that she was now being incarcerated in a laundry. And I think the thing about your book is that it really gives voice to all these women because part of that shame and stigma was the silencing that came along with it. So did you get a sense? I know there were some people who didn't want to talk and some people who certainly didn't want to use their names. But was there also a sense that people were needing to to tell about their stories and to, to put it out there because they'd kept it silent for so long? I, I think, you know, we talk about giving people a voice and there are so many powerful voices there. 
that are, you know, finally breaking silences on this. And it was sort of about creating space for them to speak and, and listening to them. And so there are several women who use pseudonyms in the book. Um, and some of that was to protect their families or to protect their children. But there was an ongoing feeling of stigma. And there are silences that are still being broken, women that are only starting to speak um, now about their experiences. So, you know, the, there's the case of one woman who was sent to Bespra uh, and then became pregnant again quite shortly after because she hadn't really wanted to give up her child. It wasn't a choice that she felt she made freely. And when she became pregnant again with, with a boyfriend who she loved very much, she was going to keep her child. And then just that overwhelming stigma sort of descended on her. It was this feeling that I, her mother had sort of insinuated she was, uh, you know, a prostitute or, or someone who was sinful. And to have her mother speak about her in this way suddenly was really painful. So she just couldn't face uh, sort of being seen like that by her own mother again, by her father. And she actually went to Dunboyne, another mother and baby home herself, um, and, and gave birth there and was again separated from her, her child. Um, but through institutions run by the church and by the state that facilitated this, this culture of shame. And I'm glad you mentioned the state as well, because I think one of the interesting things that's brought up by your book and the conversation we're kind of having is culpability, like about how much we maybe over a certain age, I wouldn't put you in it, but people over a certain age have a sort of a culpability in all of this, that it's not like people didn't know what was going on in those places. Did you get any insights into that? And and what would your own take be on, is there still some self-reflection? Because it's it's very easy. And of course, they, they the blame is there to say the church and even the state did it. But as a society in Ireland, there was um, an allowance of this to go on. There wasn't people um, standing up and, and talking about how wrong it was. I think that, you know, for someone, you know, of my generation, I think it's very under, very difficult to understand the power of the church at that time and the influence that it had on people. So, you know, I'm often asked, well, what about the families? And, and yet, you know, who were the families listening to and, and who was the authority at the time that was sort of informing that that moralism and that sense of shame? And so, you know, there was a real fear um, of being seen to do wrong and, and sort of there was a, a culture of respectability that had a, you know, a huge role to play in this. But, you know, there were people that tried to speak out even in the earlier years earlier years um, you see sort of politicians some politicians uh, speaking out about what happened the death rates in these homes saying that you know sort of a so-called illegitimate child in the slums in Dublin would have a better chance of surviving than within institutions that were run by the church and the state and this is back in the very first years of these institutions um, and you know there's pamphlets by the religious orders uh, advertising I guess their services or their institutions and in one of them describes the experience of a mother who told her her family she was going off for a medical operation and so her family didn't even know she was going away um, but she was staying in one of these institutions and, and was separated from her child and in in that little passage in that pamphlet she's saying talking about the just unimaginable pain that she's going through and that separation over only a couple of weeks I think at that stage that felt like years and this was being used to advertise <laughs> 
that system of institutions. So the religious orders themselves were very aware of the effect it was having on women, but they saw this as sort of the best way to, you know, maintain um, a woman's reputation in society. Or, There's such a handmaid's tale sort of vibe of all right, of it, isn't there? Right. And I think Atwood's new book, you know, talks a lot about um, complicity in the people within uh, the orders or within society um, who were complicit. But, you know, I think that when we talk about that, we have to be aware of the huge influence and power of the church at the time. Tell me about some of the stories you heard from women who worked in these places because often they were doing what they were told but they were a witness, they were bearing witness to extraordinary trauma and sadness and grief that they would have had to keep us quiet about. Uh, so what type of stories did they have to say about the women who were coming there? So there, it, the institution that was around the corner from my house um, which is described as a holding centre for children there were trainee nursery nurses that worked there and these were young women themselves, some only teenagers who were sent there to train and who would look after the babies um, and they would see often women coming to the door when they worked in this specific place called the milk kitchen uh, they were also in, in responsible for opening the door and they would see women come with their babies, some very young women, um, some older coming with their with their partner. The younger women often came with their friends or their parents and being made to hand over their babies to the nuns. That's how they described it. And looking back, you know, I think at the time they were so young, it was something that they just thought was normal. Um, and they thought that's, that's how it's done. But there was a sense and an, une an unease at that time that these women were not being given a choice, that this was something they were being forced to do. And also, I, you know, sort of trying to understand why there was a lack of humanity in a way. You know, one baby came in with their name and their date of birth sort of scrawled on their body in red ink and the nurse just couldn't imagine this being done if it was a child who was born to a married woman. That sort of stigma um, of being so-called illegitimate uh, meant these children were treated differently. And the nurses tried to give a lot of affection to the children, but it was almost discouraged by the religious sisters who were running the institution. There was also, I, I spoke with social workers who would have, you know, in the later years, in the 70s and 80s, would have been involved in visiting these homes and, and, and would have been very aware of the institutions. And I think one woman um, described she had worked in St. Patrick's on the Navan Road, which is the biggest mother and baby home in Ireland. And she described the, the sort of huge power that you had being able to offer a couple, you know, a child. Um, and she described it as being sort of almost like playing God. God-like, yeah. Uh, and I mean, it was they were kind of mercenary about it as well because they were making money out of this, you know. There were private donations given. Um, there were. It was expected that women would pay for their children to stay in Temple Hill. The state paid the mother and baby homes like Vesper and Chum. Um, those institutions they paid for each woman who was there, but families also paid. They were expected to give private payments. Uh, there was a midwife in the fifties who wrote a book about Vesper and about how. Families would have to pay £100 at the time for the, the women to be able to leave. Uh, Rose, the woman I mentioned, uh, who gave birth twice in Tume and was sent to the laundry, by getting her records, we realised that her family actually 
had paid for her son to remain in Tume after she left. And it almost seemed like that was a condition for her to leave, that they would have to pay for her son to remain in Tume. And when you think of the death rates in these homes, when you think of the conditions and, you know, so the way that children were buried as well, the fact that families were paying for them to be there, I think that was quite shocking for me to find out. I mean, I think for a lot of people, what woke a lot of people up to all of this was Chew and was Catherine Corliss, you know, uncovering all of that of that information. What is your feeling now about um, how, because there's a report going on, isn't there? It isn't coming out. It's coming out in February. What will we learn from that? Is there much more to learn, do you think? Or do we kind of know pretty much what what went on there? There's so much still to know. You know, there are so many answers that are still needed. Uh, the report, there was a burials report that has come out. What happened, you know, the burials in Tume, it's very clear from the results of the test excavations that there were human remains found in the sewage chambers in Tume. There's no debating that, that that they found evidence of that. Um, But it does go beyond Tume. Over 900 children died in Bespra and they only found burial places for 64 confirmed So there are hundreds of children who died and we don't know where they're buried. And in this book, I I spoke with a woman um, whose story is included in this book, Anna Gorman, who's still searching for where her daughter Evelyn is buried. She, um, her daughter died in Bespra in the 70s and she has been searching um, for the burial place of her own daughter. And all she wants is to know that when she goes into the grave herself, that her daughter will be there with her. And so when people say things like survivors are only out for money, they're only looking for compensation, this woman just wants answers. She just wants the most basic dignity of knowing where her her child is buried. Um, So the report is due out and we're hoping that there will be answers on um, the conditions in these homes. Obviously, the commission has access to thousands and thousands of records. Um, how free the consent was given by women, that is something within their remit uh, to sort of report on. So, uh, you know, whether the agreements to these adoptions were consensual, um, whether women actually did give their consent for their babies to be taken for adoption, that will be an important part. Um, And the conditions within the homes, the the causes of death, for children who died in the homes. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. And we haven't really touched on the Magdalene laundries yet as much. From your perspective, what were some of the most memorable stories that you encountered or the women that you spoke to who'd had these? And like I said earlier, you know, they might have just been high spirited, you would call them, or people who just didn't fit the mould. And yet they were locked up in some cases for many, many years, their whole lives taken away from them in service, in servitude, uh, doing laundry for the nuns for no money and just out of the loop of the society and their families. Yeah, there was an incredible um, event last year, Dublin Honours Magdalens, um, by Justice for Magdalens Research, um, organised it. And to see these women sort of um, gather together and share their stories, and it was, you know, a really bright day, and so they were all out in in really colourful, wonderful outfits, and to see them all as individual women who had their own lives, who had the, you know these wonderful, powerful women 
who had survived these institutions and gone on to live their lives. There was one woman called Gabrielle and, and she had been born in St. Patrick's on the Navan Road and then, you know, was sent to another institution and she went out, I think, for a date with, with a man, uh, a young man. She was, she was very young at the time. And when she came back, her bags were packed and she was sent off to Sean McDermott Street. And when she wouldn't work there and she tried to escape, she was sent off to a, a different Magdalene Laundry. Um, so, you know, she did manage to leave. She went to England like many women did, fearing that they could never sort of live freely here in this country. Um, but there was also a woman called Mary who was also born on the Navan Road in a mother and baby home. And she was institutionalized for her whole life. So she still lives in Cork on the grounds of the Magdalene Laundry on Peacock Lane, run by the Sisters of Charity. And she lived her whole life in these institutions run by, run by the nuns. Um, so she grew up being made to work in St. Patrick's on the Navan Road, being made to work in a mother and baby home. And then when she was maybe in her early 20s, she was sent off to Cork with another few women and to a different institution run by a different order of nuns. And she worked there for her entire life. And she is still living there on the grounds. So I, say, I love what you've written about and what we read about in the book is very, uh, it makes one very angry. Um, it's also very moving. And you do a very good job in weaving your own as a younger woman. It's sort of told in real time, like, for example, with the Pope's visit you mentioned earlier. Um, I think that's very powerful. You know, the Pope actually went past Sean McDermott Street in his cavalcade, you know. Um, and I think some people got to meet with him that time as well. But it's all told in real time. And so there was a lot going on, wasn't there, when you were writing the book? I mean, as a journalist, I think it was important to to speak with people and to give a sense of how how urgent this is and how sort of recent um, and to cover it in real time. And also to the only way really to weave together, I think, all the histories of these different institutions and the current, you know, day um, issues affecting survivors was to tell it through my own experience of speaking with people. Uh, so that was very important to me. And to speak with younger women like uh, Jess Kavanagh, a musician whose mother was born in Castle Pollard, mother and baby home. And we actually went together to the GRO to find that birth certificate and to discover which institution her mother was was born in. That was very powerful. And Jess speaks um, about the generational impact of these institutions um, on families, on, on, on her as a young woman. Um, so that was something she sort of inherited this this legacy of shame that had affected her family. Isn't it interesting, though, given all we've talked about and, and the church and all of that, like the relationship between Ireland, Irish society and the church is still quite strong. I know um, many people have gone away from the church or, you know, don't have time for it. But I, I find it kind of for me personally, I find it quite surprising that even after knowing all of these things, that there isn't a kind of rejection, a blanket rejection. What do you think? Well, I think it was really shocking with me to speak with people within the church who almost entertained the idea of the mother and maybe homes being brought back as an alternative to abortion during the whole debate on, on repeal. So there was a priest who, who wrote, I think, to a, a local paper 
saying that mother-baby homes could be brought back as an alternative. And I said this to Bishop Kevin Doran uh, last year at the World Meeting of Families that I attended. And he said, oh, well, if they did come back, they'd have to be a lot more supportive. And he said something along those lines. But I think it just shows the lack of understanding of the suffering these institutions caused and the ongoing suffering it's causing women and and people who were born in these institutions. And so it's a real lack of acknowledgement of that, that you would even suggest that these institutions could be brought back. Um, And, you know, reporting on on the castle, the institution in Donegal that was open until 2006, this was very closely uh, connected with pro-life uh, crisis pregnancy agencies, um, which referred women to this institution. So, you know, there, it, there are concerns about, you know, the fact that this is being suggested as an alternative, that there's even talk that these homes could be brought back. What else needs to happen, do you think, Kaylin, from from your older research? Um, and is there... It seems like we're talking a lot about it, but is there still layers to get through, do you think? I think there's many silences still to be broken. There's many women who are only telling their, talking about their experiences for the very first time. We have women like Magella Moynihan, who um, broke the silence on her story uh, very recently about um, feeling forced to be separated from her own child and the shame that was put on her as a, a young Garda recruit. Um, in the 80s. Uh, So there are still women who are beginning to trace. Um, There are still people born in these institutions who are uh, beginning to trace their own family. So we need to provide the supports for that. Right now, the woman I mentioned to who was born in 1988 is only beginning to trace her own mother and she's looking at three years waiting for Tusla to begin that process. And that's that's just an is unimaginable way. It's sort of indicative of, of a disrespect for women that is still going on. It's an institutional disrespect that, you know, we think we've come a long way, but surely those people should be helped in whatever way they can and any doors should be opened and documents given. There shouldn't be any wait for that. And I think that that sense of, of shame is still sort of imposed, you know, as if this is something that women should keep secret, you know, or um, and it can come across in some ways as respecting privacy but I did speak with women who have not told their families that they gave birth in in the institutions that that they have children who they've never reunited with and it was never that they didn't want to search for their children or that they'd stopped thinking about their children never It, it stayed with these women their whole lives and they were always wondering how that child was but it was the fear the ongoing fear of stigma um, and the barriers still in place to accessing information, something that is so difficult and, and very emotional to do. And so there is a, still a sense that there is some stigma. And, and the fact that people still don't have the right to their own information um, is really an urgent issue, I think. And attempts to seal records. So there is a bill at the moment um, that is attempting to seal the records of the Commission on Child Abuse for 75 years. And this just perpetuates a culture of secrecy. Why would they be trying to do that? I think there have been concerns raised by the religious orders about these records being released. So there is a resistance to these stories being made public and these experiences. Did you get brought up a Catholic? 
I was raised Catholic. Yeah, yeah. I, I did all of the sacraments. I was baptized. I did my communion. Uh, there was a video taken of me at the communion and I, I chewed the host because I liked the song. So that was <laughs> an ongoing uh, joke in my family. I did my, my confirmation. And um, so I was raised a Catholic. Had, did it challenge you researching this book at all or have you been challenged in your faith or had you gone away from it anyway? I, I was never a person of, of strong faith, but I do respect the faith of others. And I think that many of the survivors are people of faith and they feel very let down by their church. Some survivors had gone to their local priest asking for help to trace their own mothers and were told, leave this be sort of brushing it under the carpet again. Um, so it's not about faith, it's about the institution of the church and holding those institutions accountable. Well, it's an incredible book. Um, I think it's a must read for everyone because it puts everything together, all these different threads that we know about. Um, the overriding feeling is that women, I think, were just nothing, that they didn't exist as, as individual human beings, that they could just be locked away and, you know, their children just disregarded as well. Um, and I wondered what you thought. There's one piece that struck me, you were down in Tume and you were talking to some young man about the, the babies that were in, in the ground and he was saying, oh, it's terrible what the nuns did. And in the next beat, he, he asked you, were you on Snapchat and were you single and could he, uh, you know, get to know you in that way? Um, which might seem like an innocent remark in some ways, but to me, it kind of was an interesting thing that you put in there because, again, it's back to seeing women only as sort of sexual objects or people to be, con you know, or conquests. And I think there's a lot to be said about patriarchy as well, about stuff that an attitude towards women, women going into pubs now and not being able to just have a drink by themselves without being pawed at by young men. Do you see a sort of connection between all these things? Well, I think in Tomb, just being there, it was just so surreal. And, and you know, there is... <laughs> That's someone trying to hit on you while you're having a Someone trying to hit on me while I'm, I'm asking about uh, babies buried in Tomb. And I, he was a young man and he did say, you know, that he thought it was important that, you know, that they were buried with dignity. And so it wasn't that he was uncaring. No, no. It was just sort of, uh, I think, a good example of how sort of surreal it is there. You go and there's a playground right beside um, the site where these children were buried and you know there's, there's kids playing there's young lads going around uh, you know talking about Snapchat uh, but you know it does when I think the ongoing shame that we see um, uh, against women in this country it does come from a long legacy and I think uh, we are overcoming that. There's a lot of change that's happening in this country, but we do owe that change to people who spoke out when it when it felt impossible to do so, to women who, who you know, really revisited very difficult and painful moments in their lives to speak up so that that wouldn't happen to women again. And, you know, we have incredible women today like Vicky Phelan, you know, speaking out against silence and, um, you know, saying we need to talk about these things for other women. Uh, we need to share our stories. It's so important. Um, and there are, you know, continuing systems of institutionalization of, of marginalized and vulnerable people, emergency accommodation, uh, direct provision, and still stigma against single mothers. I was speaking with a woman recently who said that, you know, she had been faced with homelessness as a single mother and she was made to feel almost selfish for keeping her child, for not giving up her child to care um, as, a, as a young single woman who was facing homelessness. And that is a sentiment that I heard time and time again from women who were sent to the institutions. They were 
told that they would be selfish to keep their child. They would be told that they couldn't offer their child the future um, that their baby deserved just because they were unmarried women uh, and that a married couple could give this child the best future. So there's still a stigma. And you still got people then outside um, places now where women can get abortions illegally, standing there, you know, protesting against it, talking about killing babies and saying it's a sin. So there is, even though we have come a long way and things have changed, there's a residual feeling there, an anti-woman feeling, I would say. Definitely, you know, I think during the repeal referendum, it was the first time I spoke to my mother about her own um, abortion. And that sense of shame, you know, she had gone out canvassing for repeal and actually uh, some man came up to her and said, you should be ashamed of yourself. You only want to enjoy your sin and, and, you know, sort of not face the consequences. So this is a sentiment that's still there. This is, that, that is a judgment that is still being leveled against women. Well, hopefully we're moving away from the Republic of Shame to something else. Uh, but I still think, as you said, we've a way to go. But thank you very much for putting your attention and your journalistic uh, expertise to this subject because it's very important. And maybe you'll have another chapter to add when the report comes out in February and we learn even more about this shameful legacy. Caelan, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks to my guest, Caelan Hogan, and a reminder that our excellent and necessary book, Republic of Shame, is out now. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.